The Start On Demand. On demand. What does it cost to investigate threats made on social media? As Winnipeg police tell us, it's kind of a shock to learn just how much. Our society continues to encourage women to be strong and confident. And while that confidence has grown by leaps and bounds, there is still a very large gap between men and women when it comes to that confidence. We meet the co-founder of the Cheesemongers, Fromagerie, and try some adventurous treats. And I slept in again. Slept through my alarm again. I need help. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, and this is the Thursday, January 24th podcast for The Start. And I also should follow up with you guys as well, and I guess I apologize too. I did it again. Yesterday, I remarked how I slept through my alarm for 45 minutes. I just slept through it. It was going off, and I didn't phase me. It was the silence of the alarm shutting off that jarred me awake at 3.46 yesterday morning. Well, I did. So I changed. I did it. I changed the system. I went into my alarm because it was the same sound every time my phone alarm went off. The, the radio goes off at 2.30, and then again at 2.50, and then the backup, the phone alarm kicks in. So I changed the sound, and I made it a different one. Every time. Well, I guess I forgot when I reset, when I change the sound, it resets the volume. So it was too quiet for me to hear from across the room because I keep my phone across the room because if it's beside me, I have this urge to just play on the phone. So I think you need to move back home because you're, <laughs> I like need I, my dad. Yeah, you need your dad. I'm calling in Papa McGarry and I'm asking him to help you out. Like, I get it. You're 40, but you don't have a handle on this situation. And I feel like he did well in high school for you. Yeah. And maybe it's just retraining, like a nice, like ba- we sleep train babies. Yeah. We just need Mr. McGarry. Come on down. Hang out with Brett for a few days. I have an alternate suggestion. I think he gets that contraption. Is it Ralph? The dog and the coyote or the wolf, and he's got that that bed that flips him up out of bed, (laughs) and the assembly line shower, shaves him, makes his coffee and everything, and he just kind of stands there, and the thing kind of works its way through the house. I think you need to invest in that, (laughs) and you'll be just fine. What would we... I went looking yesterday, like, this is my new mission. Oh, the... The the, helicopter. Well, we found two, right? First of all, we were looking for the the alarm alarm. clock that that, that runs away from you. It's Mm -hmm. got a roll, like a rolling pin almost. Looks like a remote control car. And then you found one that's almost like a mini drone. Yeah, so it it looked... (laughs) It's so... It was 29 bucks, so I was like, there's no way this thing works past its one effort to wake you up, but whatever, I want to get it. And it like raises in the air and then pieces of the helicopter fly off and the alarm won't shut off until you piece the alarm clock back together. I think that's genius because it, what ends up happening when you get up and hit mindlessly hit snooze is that you're not awake yet, but when you have to do something complicated, that's enough. That takes enough energy to wake you up. Mm. Do you remember that that blue and red uh, ball thing with all the different shapes when we, when you were a baby and you would put take the yellow yeah. shapes and you had to find the right hole to put it inside and then you opened it. Uh, maybe we could reconfigure one of those where you have to complete that puzzle in order for the alarm to go off because you'd be wide awake after that. Well, I would I w- see. I was hoping like I went in and I picked all the most annoying music sounds. Like here's one, for example. Uh, this is come on. 
Oh, of course it's not working now. Oh, because you have the volume down. So that's that's the first one. But I couldn't hear it because the volume wasn't... Sorry, put that up louder again. Oh, it went, it went and away. Where are you getting these tunes? Are they just on your phone? Yeah, it's in this. It's in Mine my... don't... You're a Samsung, though. Well, I downloaded an app. Uh, it's called Timely. This feels like you're going for a roller skate. <laughs> I hope you didn't... <laughs> I hope I hope you didn't pay for that app. No, it's no. not really doing anything for you. It's worked for you me. should be you should be asking for your money back. It's I worked think. for me for two years, but for whatever reason, two days now I've had problems. Maybe so. we should launch a contest and like our top five ideas get to record some sort of thing they think is going to work for you, and then you play that for a week, and then whoever I like wins, that a lot. yeah. So it could be their voice, it could be their alarm system. You that, use it. That's a great idea. Text us at 204-780-6868, or you can email Mackling at CJOB.com, McGarry at CJOB.com, or McNabb at CJOB.com. Help me wake up because I'm having uh, problems. Like I was when it, like Loren said, I might need to call and smash Gordon to help me out. We're always careful not to publicize online threats, especially made at schools. There are exceptions to the rule, depending on how public the threats are. Yesterday, Winnipeg police announced they've arrested and charged a 12- and 13-year-old. They've been charged with uttering threats to cause bodily harm or death. One of them made threats against Arthur Day Middle School and John W. Gunn Middle School in Transcona. The other for threats toward Ecole Van Bellingham and near Furmore and Lakewood in Southdale. Constable Jay Murray sat down with the news with Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham yesterday at 4.07 and revealed it's expensive to look into these threats. The most recent investigations cost $45,000. That's pretty much an investigation that started on Thursday evening and worked through right until yesterday. And there's still some follow-up today. So um, a number of officers with their major crimes unit and officers, uh, uniform officers on the street have been involved Um, since we received the threats on Thursday. And no matter how insignificant these threats may seem to be, they have to be taken seriously. Absolutely. You never know until you um, discover who made them, the the credibility behind them, if if something can happen. And we had a lot of very stressed parents, a lot of worried parents. Anyone that had kids uh, or family members that had kids go to that school were were extremely worried. Murray also says it gets tricky when social media is involved because you then have to work with these various platforms. And it also depends if the company has representation in Canada. Are they a U.S. company? In this case, the company we're dealing with, I believe, was based out of Europe which obviously just through distance and time zones and and communication, there were some challenges there. Um, Ultimately, the company was cooperative with us and and provided us with information that helped us identify the perpetrators. Um, But um, it it can get very complicated. So the signal from police here is you can't do this and expect to not be held accountable. Uh, Certainly, and and we really hope that if you're you're with your child right now or or if you're with them tonight, just maybe use this as a learning opportunity and and talk to your child about posting things online and and just the ramification of the consequences, the seriousness, the impact, all that. I mean, I think a lot of people maybe say stuff online and don't realize the ramifications or uh, how powerful those, those messages can be. In this case, they were threats that ultimately were taken very seriously and worried a lot of people. I don't know about you guys, but I know that just talking about the ramifications of the stuff you put online, I, I know that I've made just jokes on Facebook or whatever, commented on people's threads that I, something I thought was funny, but turned out to be very offensive mm-hmm. to them. And it was just like what I thought was kind of a harmless thing. But then when you actually make a full on threat and think you're 
going to get away with it or there's going to be no consequences? Well, I've mentioned to you guys before, I used to work with my dad and he'd leave these yellow sticky notes in the root book when I was a milkman Mm -hmm. oh so long ago, almost 30 years ago now. And it always sounded like he was yelling at me, right? So context uh, is a problem in the written word. And then online in this business, there are lots of times I respond to uh, a Twitter post or go to retweet something with a comment and I'll type it out and I'll go, no, that's going to get taken the wrong Mm -hmm. way. And so, you know, I always talk to my kids about there being a difference between an accident and making sure you don't do something because there's a little bit of a divergence there. And I think we're at the point where you just have to make sure you don't do certain things because they could be taken very literally. And and to make sure that these kids that are making those threats and, and, and I feel for them, I think that there's other things going on that the that's causing them to act out in that manner. And they might need to be talking to somebody just about what their concerns are. You know, people, all sorts of people have issues with the bullying or other at school. And that causes them to say things uh, that they don't mean to come across as harmful, but they're hurting. And so they, the hurt extends to others. And so there's a conversation that might need to happen with anyone uh, on a more therapeutic level. So could that, could it be potentially, I don't want to use the word good, but, could we be monitoring these things and realize, hey, you know what? We might have a, a situation that isn't obvious behind these right. things. So we were talking yesterday to that uh, social media expert about digital citizenship and responsible social media behavior. Behavior, And she wrote me later in the day just to say she had been following along with the Winnipeg story and just wanted to comment on the fact that she she was sort of hurting for these kids too because there's obviously something else that they need to be spoken to about. And so to be mindful of that if you're a parent or counselor or school person. But at the end of the day, if the threat's being made to the school, they have to take that seriously. And $45,000, you do have to be punished for that. You do have to know that there's a charge with that. It's no different than when you pull the fire alarm at school. You had the you had the firefighters, sometimes two or three trucks respond. When I worked at 201 Portage and whenever you got called out for a fire alarm, there's a like it's a whole building and then five, four or five trucks that have to come to make sure everything's all clear. Well, that the resources and the time just for that, say, 45 minutes alone is huge. Let well, alone the for, interrupted productivity. Let alone the cost right. of trying to figure out, is this threat real? Do I need to be concerned about it? How do I crack down on it? Who do we find? Who do we charge? I mean, that's a tremendous amount of resources. So there, do, there does have to be consequences there. It's just... Um, also learning from it, I think, is the more important thing. And Constable Jay Murray responding to the question from Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham. What is the message for kids and parents who just might not take this stuff seriously? Well, we've got to be careful because at the end of the day, we have to treat this threat seriously from the get-go. And until we can determine that there is, we, we felt there's no credibility after we place these these two under arrest. But we've got to be careful. And, and a considerable number of resources were deployed in this manner. Um, a lot of people were very are affected by this, both with stress and worry. A lot of students missed school. I mean, this impacted the community in more ways than one. And I remember the, you know, I think we all remember the, the boy cried wolf story. And that's the other concern is that if this becomes commonplace enough that police, and I'm not suggesting that they'll do this, but my concern is at some point they go, oh, another one of these here we go again, and they don't end up taking them as seriously as they've taken these ones. Or the school or the students. I mean, we practiced fire drills growing up for that reason that you didn't come become commonplace. Well, kids, unfortunately, now are practicing active shooter drills, and you hope that they never, ever have to put that in practice. But if they're hearing on a regular basis a threat of a shooting, how— 
if that ever comes, if a real life scenario ever comes to their school and that say that message goes out or their teacher says we're on lockdown, are they just going to be like, oh, well, we had a lockdown last week. Like I'm running out the window. Or, I, I don't know. I just it, it is very important to, to take it seriously. But when it becomes repetitive and commonplace, how seriously will the kids even take it? Yesterday, Greg did something after work that prompted him to shout out, this hurts my manhood. And he's reluctantly agreed to discuss it this morning because I want to know why does it hurt our ego when we fail at something, even if the odds are against us. So here's what happened. I noticed that one of my headlights was out. I've never replaced a headlight on my car. So I asked Greg, because Greg knows how to fix things. He does man things. I don't do man things very well. <laughs> so he, I said, do you know how to do this? And he said, well, in theory, you know, we, gotta, we can take a look. So we popped the hood of my car and he, we took a look and he says, oh, yeah, we should be able to figure this out. But the workspace was very tight. Like there was room for to put your hand in, but there was no room to move it around. He ended up scraping your knuckle. You're even too proud to admit that. It wasn't a fresh cut. You're like, oh, I did this yesterday. It's no problem. He's bleeding all over my car. and uh, But he was able to get the headlight out, but he was unable to pull the headlight off of, like, to disconnect it. Correct. It was on there really tight. We just couldn't get the leverage on the, the latch on the back. So... At that point, he said, "This hurts my manhood." I said, "It's okay, man. You know, it's it's you're not a, we're not mechanics. We're not in a garage." So I ended up going to Murray Chev, where I got my car, and uh, they they figured it out and they took care of it. So thank you very much to Murray Chev. But that got me wondering, like, so I'll ask you, why did it hurt your manhood? Well, because it's something that I've done I've done before on other vehicles, and it's not that difficult and. When you don't accomplish a task, you set out to f- complete, it is. It, it it bruises one's ego. At least it does mine. I don't like to not finish something I've started. Even if, you know, like you had no workspace, you cut your hand. It doesn't matter. That just made me more determined to get yeah. it done, actually. Quite, I'll be honest with you. So, yeah, I, I didn't like how that felt to not get that done. And I wanted to help you. I didn't want you to have to go somewhere else. Yeah, You should have taken a uh, 4-H course like I did when I was younger called Car Care. And then your womanhood could have <laughs> risen to the occasion. Just throwing that out there. So uh, what are you saying? Uh, Brett asked the wrong co-host to help him with the headlight? No, I'm mocking the manhood Language. <laughs> Napper does have smaller hands. I do have smaller yeah. hands. Well, you can put it in womanhood context if you'd like, <laughs> if you'd like to share a story. For me, I don't have womanhood. I have manhood. And it's, it's a very well, masculine thing. Well, yesterday. That's a very masculine Ooh. thing, too, though, right? Is to, you know, we... <laughs> Did men, you hear that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, shot from across the bow. <laughs> but it is, like, that's, I think that's part of the issue, too, right? Like, guys can be stubborn that way because yeah. they feel like it's an affront on their manhood when they can't do something like that. I think that. that's fair. And I think that unfortunately still exists. Like now that I can understand that from my father or grandfather's generation, but right now, like even things I can see it happen on our street where someone's outside fixing something and someone else will walk over to say, can I help you out? And someone's always saying, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And six hours later, they'll still be out there like just fixing this really small thing because nobody wants to say, A, I can use the help or B, I don't know what I'm doing. Well, just a couple of weeks ago, I bought one of those uh, Nordic track, uh, whatever, elliptical trainer, yeah. right? And they're super heavy. They must weigh three or 400 pounds. So Jackie's like, give Malcolm a call. He'll come and help you. And I'm like, I don't want to bug him. 
I'll do it. I'll take care of it. She's like, it's really heavy. A long story short, Alexander comes out and he goes, Dad, you and I, we can do this. We don't need any help. Wow. Sure enough, Malcolm showed up and the thing was already downstairs because Alexander and I managed to get it downstairs. I don't know, Kelly. I, there's something about asking for help that is very difficult for me. Maybe when you get a little bit older, you'll realize the benefits of asking for help. Because I used to be bullheaded like you, too. Uh, but I, I didn't have very many handyman-type skills. Still don't to a certain degree, but I've learned a few things along the way that have helped me correct some of my younger issues. And one of the things I could say is, you know what? It doesn't hurt to ask for help. It does not hurt uh, to uh, enlist the services of someone who has a little more knowledge and uh, a little more skill than you do to get the job done right. You can learn from them to do it right the next time, but try to do it the first time when you don't have the knowledge or the tools or whatever, probably not a good idea. Just got to have the friends that have the knowledge and the yeah. tools. That's what I do. Very, very quick story. I tried to repair a VCR one time. I took it into uh, a place on Portage. The guy says, who's the idiot who stuck a knife into this? <laughs> oh, one, of the kids, what? <laughs> one of the kids must have done that. <laughs> I used to fix VCRs for a living, and I can tell you we, never, we never once used a knife. Yeah. That's, not, that's not the tool of choice, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> You used to fix VCRs. Yeah, screwdriver, wrench, butter knife. Wow. <laughs> Not so much. Regulation knife. Yeah. What about you, Milroy? Have you ever find yourself being uh, too just, stubborn? Oh, 100% for sure. Most, mostly with electronic stuff. Cars, I just don't bother touching. My brother works as a, in a body shop or mechanic place, so he does all that stuff. I don't worry about any of that. But yeah, definitely just see her. It's just the hubris, and you go, I should know how to do this. I don't know why I feel that way when you kind of examine inward. You go... I don't know why I feel that way, but I do. And now I will try to not destroy this piece of equipment I own. And it doesn't usually work. Yeah. I, I think I'd like to think things are getting better with the whole uh, pride thing and asking questions and the idea that there was a role for a man and woman to play when we all learn and know so much now. But then I think about YouTube and the fact that we can all just like search how to do something and how that must lead to Far more idiots putting the knife <laughs> into some sort of appliance. That's how I thought she's looking at me while she's saying No, because the, the, the internet tells you how to do it. You're like, that looks simple. And next thing you know, you've gone down this rabbit hole and behind your own oven. And you're like, oh, I use YouTube to dad. find out how to tie a tie because my dad didn't know because he works in radio his whole life. So he doesn't know how to tie a tie. But I had to look it up on YouTube and I figured it out. And then I tied his tie for him. Wow. See, so yeah. it worked. Yeah. Well, I figured yeah. out how to fix my dryer thanks to YouTube once too. So. Wow. Sometimes it helps. Just buy a new one. Yeah. Yeah, no. one, of, one of our <laughs> listeners said, you two geniuses should have used YouTube to see how to take the headlight out. Well, we did consult YouTube, and we had everything correct, but even the professionals had a hard time doing it. Yeah, that's right. When I took it to Murray, uh, a couple of guys I'm sounding were looking defiant at it. now. They were, a couple of guys <laughs> were looking at it, and they thought that it was just jammed in there, that it was corroded. And I thought, okay, well, that's why Greg couldn't get it out. But then they went and consulted one of the mechanics from the back. He came out, and he, he just kind of squeezed it, and it popped loose. There was, there was this tiny little latch that you had to squeeze at the back. And... <laughs> That, like, we tried that. I think we knew it was there, but we couldn't reach it. We couldn't get to it. We didn't have the leverage because these guys, they, they, the first thing they did is they pulled something out. Doesn't that make you like, feel better, though? Like, when a professional even, you're like, because nothing's worse when you go and you know hey. they're just going to be like, did you turn the car off on and buddy, then turn what, it back on? What kind of a butter knife are you using? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's like the pickle jar. It's like you always have to say, oh, I got it started yeah, for you. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I loosened it. We start this half hour with the headline, Confidence Gap Between Men and Women. Yeah, and this is an article that was written by Myrna Dreger, who is a well-known MLA in the Manitoba legislature, also speaker of the legislature. And I'm going to guess no stranger to the challenges that might come when it comes to just gender and, and women in politics. But we'll get her to answer some of those questions. She joins us on the phone now. Good morning, Myrna. Oh, good morning. So what prompted you to write this article? Well, I think it... It started in my head maybe when I was thinking about getting into politics a number of years ago, and uh, I thought I had a pretty good resume and I would go down this road and show some interest in politics. And then I agreed to do it, and then partway into the nomination process, I just absolutely froze and I thought, what the heck am I doing? I'm not smart enough for this. And uh, I was really shaken by that, too. And I was still in the nomination process, and I was running against uh, two other women and a man. And I thought, I can't do this. I just can't do this. I was sitting down to write my nomination speech. And for a couple hours, I just sat there looking out the window thinking, I don't know how to do this. And what, you know, years later now, I realized that, what was showing in me at that point was a, a confidence gap. I hadn't paid attention. And at that point, there wasn't a lot of research and studies done in the issue about this real confidence gap that there are between men and women. But I, something happened to me as I was sitting there thinking, and all of a sudden things came to me, and I started writing, and I decided, I want this job. I'm going to do this. And uh, taking that very first step is one of the key things to, you know, breaching this confidence gap between men and women. But my my fear was so, um, it just froze me. And then when I later had to do a speech to women and talk about getting into leadership and, and what all of that meant, I was sitting preparing that speech and I realized when I looked back at my former career as a nurse or as a you know executive director of a missing children's organization and all the other things I'd done in my life I thought wow why why was I so afraid look at look at your history look at your resume like what happened to you and um so as I move forward in politics and I'm talking to more women in politics I am trying to understand and be able to answer the question, why don't we get more women into politics? Marna, you were first, just so if I could point out to our listeners, you were first elected in 1998, correct? Right. So that was 20 years ago. Do you think there's been a shift at all when it comes to the confidence that may be experienced or women having the similar experience that you had when it came to writing that nomination paper then versus now? Have, have we grown or changed at all? Or are you hearing the same sort of thing when you try to encourage women to enter politics today? It might be improved a little bit but not nearly what it needs to be. And uh, it's not just in politics. It's in women getting onto boards, women taking over companies, women being CEOs of companies, women going into the STEM groups like science, technology, engineering, and math. We just don't see women typically you know, thinking that they might be smart enough for all of these. And um, 
the the studies are coming out now, but we're not talking about them quite enough. I was uh, I'm part of an organization, uh, an invited member of the Women of Winnipeg, and about a year ago we all started to read this confidence code and it talks about the science and art of self-assurance, what women should know, and it it includes all of the research that has been done uh, for many years about why this exists, when it starts, what it means, and what we need to do to get past it. I I feel as though I should be addressing you as Madam Speaker, so if that's okay, I'll do that. Uh, It's Greg Mackling here, and uh, nice to connect with you as always. You know, it's funny because as I sit here, I think... Everywhere I go, I see women who are in charge of organizations, women who are the majority of the workforce in certain critical organizations and workplaces in our province. And I go to convocations at University of Manitoba and University of Winnipeg where a majority of the graduates are women now. I I guess I'm blown away at this, at this uh, concept that women are lacking confidence in this day and age when they're doing such incredible things. And I hope that doesn't sound condescending in any fashion. It, it, it doesn't add up in my head. Uh, and you ca- it can't be generalized either because, you know, look at me. I did do it. And I've had an incredibly successful career in politics at many, many different levels. So it is... Um, it's something that can happen to women. If you can get past that first step where you're holding yourself back and you don't decide to take that step, um, then we see women that, that maybe aren't going forward and doing a lot of the things that they might want to do. Some women do it, and some women have incredible confidence. But sometimes you may have had a little burp in all of that, more than a little burp. You may have had this period of time where you thought, I can't do it. But then you took that step, you went and took action, and you can succeed. And in fact, a lot of times when women take that first step, they can succeed. When you ask men to run for politics, they don't hesitate at all to jump in. When you ask women to run for politics, and this, I... I, have heard this in in other area, you know, other countries too. As I've talked to women in politics, the first thing that women will say is, "I'm not smart enough," and uh, you can almost generalize that when when you talk about women in politics. But once they realize, because sometimes you have to just take a step back and have a look at your resume, you are smart enough. It's just. Don't be afraid to take that first step. Our brains are not quite wired in the way that that men's are wired. And so women hold themselves back. If they take that step, women can be very, very successful. But there's a lot of women that, that are too afraid to take that step. And in fairness, some of them that don't want to, and that's okay too. Verna Dreger, before we let you go, I just wanted to ask you, you reference in, in the, the piece that you wrote that you're going to be hosting something called Pathfinders. What's that? Oh, that's an older form of girl guides. And the, the, the research shows that between the ages of 8 and 14, girls' confidence levels fall by 30%. And that, you know, that's because of how brains are wired, how kids are socialized. And 
if we reach girls when they're young, and Girl Guides is a perfect example, I had every seat in the chamber filled last year with young girls. And this year we just finished doing the same with a little the little older group of, of 12 to 14-year-olds, and they learn how to debate, and they learn about democracy. And so if you can reach girls at an early age to get them thinking about leadership, their abilities to do things, then I'm hoping that the more we can reach young girls, the more we won't find women, young women, um, not wanting to do something because they don't have the confidence to do it. Well, I was a member of the Pathfinders and I loved every second of it. So I certainly appreciate you reaching out to the next generation of women and helping them do what they can to uh, find their greatest self. Thank you so much for joining us, Myrna. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Education and the review that's being undergone in our province. Yeah, just the the, the province and the premier promised he was going to do this when he elect, was elected uh, to take a look at the whole education system. Well, the headline at globalnews.ca is the education review of K to twelve schooling. We'll also take a look at reducing or eliminating elected school boards in Manitoba. And we know there's going to be a lot of reaction on this throughout the day. And for some more, we're joined by the president of the Manitoba School Boards Association, Alan Campbell. Good morning, Alan. Good morning. We know this is an idea that's been talked about in circles for years now, Alan. When you now hear it and that it might be part of what they're examining as they go down the road, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, I guess the first thing is that it's not a surprise uh, for Manitoba School Boards Association. We've been in conversation with the Minister Gertson and uh, former Minister of Education Wishart since 2017 about what we can expect in the review. And we appreciate that they've been up front, that uh, school board amalgamation uh, has been on the table right from the very beginning. Um, so when, uh, you know, obviously our position is that uh, a reduction in community voice in the delivery of public education will in no way uh, help improve outcomes uh, or certainly uh, improve accountability. Um, so we've been clear on that position from the outset and uh, our member boards have uh, have been engaging with the Manitobans in their jurisdictions uh, for some time now on anticipation of the review and now that we've had the announcement, which we're pleased to have had, um, we're, we're engaging with Manitobans, uh, you know, in a more focused way now that we know the details of the review itself. Al, Al, Alan, in conversation with people who deliver education directly, I've I've heard the, the the concern about this. Even in a city like Winnipeg, where there are a handful of school divisions, the concern is: well, this school division uh, handles and and represents a, a certain segment of the population w- w- which needs this type of service more predominantly than a different school division in a different part of the city which needs more services in this area. I can only imagine that's magnified across the province, let alone just within the city of Winnipeg. Definitely, and, and we, would, we, would, we would look to that uh, description that you just offered as one of the key strengths to the local school board in that the local, the local neighbourhood and the local communities elect their fellow citizens to represent them in the delivery of education. And of course, that's important for parents and for parent advisory councils and for family members of students that are in the schools and have a direct stake in it. But it's also important for everyone in the neighborhood, whether or not they have anyone in the school, because as taxpayers, you expect that your education system is, is, you know, providing an education for the next generation of your fellow citizens, be they from your own community or from Manitoba, Canada at large. And it's important to maintain that community voice. You mentioned the, the urban setting, but also, of course, in rural Manitoba, 
we see extremely important relationships between school boards at the local level and rural municipalities where perhaps the local school is the heart and soul of the, of the small town in Manitoba where it's, it doubles as the community center, it doubles as you know, perhaps the only auditorium in the area or a gymnasium that offers services far outside of what the normal public school you know, description is. So all of those different variables are, are resourced and are captured, understood uh, by local people who've been elected by their fellow, fellow citizens in their communities and reducing the number of school boards, reducing the number of school board trustees and therefore limiting community voice and public democratic engagement in public education is not what we would be to consider something that's going to benefit educational outcomes for Manitoba. So, Alan, the cost might be that distance that you would create at one large governing body and have less control and, and less direct contact in a local community. But the advantage, and many people will argue this, is that you'll have a, a capacity to gain more that with less expense, that it might cut costs, that you won't have all these superintendents being paid what some might perceive as too high of salaries, and you'll be able to streamline and be more efficient. Is there not a cost reduction argument to be made that would be something that we could consider, if not eliminating, but some reduction somewhere? Yeah, I, I guess the, the cost reduction piece is certainly something that school boards are always cognizant of. Um, and and you, you referenced uh, superintendent salaries, and, and we, would, we would look at superintendent salaries and we would look at other comparable positions with comparable uh, responsibilities in terms of the number of staff that they're responsible for, the number of students or, or you know, customers that they're responsible for, if you were to compare it to other aspects of the public sector. And we would say that we're, we're right in line in terms of, of how school division staff are paid. In terms of cost savings from a reduction in trustees, school board trustees themselves account for less than half a cent of every dollar that's spent on public education in this province. So obviously there's no real cost savings there. And when when we want to talk about fiscal accountability, school boards are happy to have those conversations with with our colleagues in the provincial government or our colleagues in local municipalities because, of course, school boards engage in uh, public annual consultations on budget and we're very transparent in terms of how we formulate our budget, how we decide what programming should be resourced and where we may have to make cuts and in cases where provincial funding may not be available or may co- come short uh, in terms of uh, services for anything ranging from mental health to mental wellness resources, uh, breakfast programs, all of the different things that happen inside a school every day. The local school board is there to make sure that the community voice is reflected in what is being provided. Alan Campbell with the Manitoba School Boards Association joining us live on 680 CJOB. Alan, thank you very much. Thank you. Courtney Dollywall, she is the co-founder of a business right down the street from where I live, and I've been meaning to go in there. I walk by it all the time. I actually did try to go in once, but it was on a Monday when it was closed. It's the Cheesemongers Fromagerie. Courtney, I, that, I love that name, the Cheesemongers. <laughs> Thanks. Well, you know what? It's uh, straightforward, and it tells you what we do. A title you wear with pride? Like, have you, are you a grown, born, and raised cheesemonger? No, no, I wish. I wish. It was always the dream. It was always the retirement dream. I was actually an engineer. And my, and my <laughs> yeah, business would, partner, Ray sure. Gifford, was uh, in corporate PR. But the dream was always to become cheesemongers. So now we're living the dream. So how did we get from engineering to always wanting to run a, and own a cheese shop? Well, you know what? Everyone always has their romantic notion of what they do someday. And Meg and I decided that the city needed it now. And it wasn't something that should wait until we retired. And uh, to be truthful... This is too busy to do in our retirement years. So, 
So we're we're doing it. So how did you manage to take concept and put it into practice and, and open the doors? What were the steps involved and what were some of your bigger obstacles? Uh, well, I think the biggest obstacle was to find the proper training because we told ourselves that if we were going to do this, we were going to do it right and we were going to become professionals and we were going to be uh, the ultimate cheese experts here in the city. And so uh, we had to find people elsewhere that would teach us. So we took our holidays, we took sabbaticals, we traveled. Where, we, where to? Uh, well, I spent a few months in France. Um, I, I learned with some cheesemakers and cheese agers there. Uh, Meg went and studied in Vermont. Uh, and everywhere from Vancouver, Seattle, California, Florida, Boston, New York, uh, anyone that would have us. We, we offered to go sweep floors and, and mop and just hang around and, and volunteer to to uh, be scut workers if we could learn from people and people to were very generous workers? with their time. <laughs> to be what workers? Well, we did the jobs that no one else wanted to do. Scut, I, a scut mucker, I, I think I, it was. I, I cleaned Im- bathrooms and it? shops and and did whatever we had to to, to get people to take pity on us and realize that uh, we were serious. And so we, we did what we had to do and, and we learned from some of the best. So as far as cheese is concerned, and you've brought in a what appears to be a very delicious assortment of cheese that we're going to try in a moment here, but we do have to ask you about the new Canada Food Guide. Loren asked the question earlier, are we even allowed? Or did you ask it? was Greg. Greg Greg was very worried. Are we even allowed to eat cheese anymore? Very concerned. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you can definitely eat cheese. I think that the new uh, Canada food uh, healthy eating regulations make a lot of sense. I think it's, it's very sensible that we should make the majority of what we eat uh, plant-based and fresh. I don't think that that's anything new to those of us that have been interested in studying nutrition for a long time. Uh, But I think that everything in moderation is always a good idea. I think that cheese is often overlooked uh, for its health benefits. I think it's often misunderstood. I think that if you are sourcing good, high-quality cheese that comes from good, high-quality milk, uh, it's a source of excellent uh, minerals, nutrients, protein, calcium, healthy fats, things that are essential for your body. Uh, There are some extremely good uh, studies out there, some very good research from extremely reputable journals and sources, the British, American, European journals of epidemiology uh, that show and link cheese consumption in moderation, of course, uh, to lowering your risk for things like stroke, cancer, other chronic diseases, very notably cardiovascular disease. Uh, So I think that when you consume it in moderation, which in moderation for cheese means something like a couple of ounces a day, which looks like the size of an egg. Um, and again, just paying attention to where the cheese comes from. If not all cheeses are created equal. So one of the things that is really important to us when we're sourcing our cheese is ensuring that it comes from 
very high quality milk. Uh, we personally take into account animal welfare and, and good animal husbandry. Uh, but if you are, are sourcing good high quality cheese, it is extremely healthy and something that you, you should eat on a regular basis. Now, uh, I just want to try to wind up Loren here, like a, like a, a top perhaps. <laughs> Loren McNabb, marble cheese. I hate it. <laughs> I really hate it. And it's not because like, I think I'm too good or something for marbled cheese. It's because cheese can be fattening or you feel like it can be. It's he- it can be healthy, but it's also got a lot of calories in it. And so I feel marbled cheese doesn't have any flavor to it. And so I'm annoyed when I'm eating something that I know might have X calories in into it. And I'm like, what? Nope, got nothing. <laughs> nope, so it's like, a, it's like a filler for the sandwich versus... A, a genuine. I, just, I don't get it. A genuine, yeah. tasteful. Right. It doesn't have a tasteful purpose. Right. And so, and I don't know when this happened. I was over, lived overseas for a few years, and I really got into like the extra old cheddars. Oh, here we go. And so then I came home, and that's all we have in our house. And like the kids' friends will come over, and I'll cut them cheese and crackers, and they're all just they they make the marble cheese face to me when I serve them the extra old cheddar because they're just like, oh, this cheese tastes weird. But marble has just. Ugh, I could go on for hours. I Do see you marble. Have any marble no, cheese? She doesn't. She's not crazy. No, we don't carry marble cheese. <laughs> Thank you. This high source, top quality, to nutritional <laughs> marble cheese. Carry marble cheese. No. I'm also not saying that I am too good for it. I have been known to eat some cheese whiz on toast from time to time. So here's, here's yeah, maybe once a year. You'll hate this. I hate marble cheese, but I love cheese whiz. Okay, now, now it doesn't even matter what but you say But you can't look at it as cheese. cheese. That's, that's just a cheese-flavored product. That's right. It's cheese oh, food. It's yeah, good. It's, it's not cheese. C-H-E-E-Z. There's a reason they spell it that way. If you want something tasty, try a cheese Whiz and peanut butter on toast. Just try it before you dump on it and after. You know what? She's brought an assortment of really de- delicious looking cheese. I and put you a can picture. smell them. Yeah. Would we call smell- this a charcuterie board? Yeah, well, you know, I I didn't plate this as a proper charcuterie board. There's no actual meat on here, but there is some tinned seafood and some candied jalapenos and a nice assortment of adventurous cheeses for you guys to try. So get you to step outside the the box a little bit. Step outside your marble zone, Brett. Mackling, McGarry, McNabb, and the Cheesemongers, Fromagerie. Courtney Dollywald is the co-founder of the Cheesemongers Fromagerie, which is located at Cordon and Lilac. And Loren just explained she hates marble cheese. <laughs> and this is probably she's probably excited about this because you've brought an assortment of adventurous cheeses. So why don't you pick one and then let us know what you've got here? Okay, well, how adventurous are you feeling on a scale of 1 to 10? 10. Yeah, sure, let's do it. Perfect. Yeah, all okay. The way. So the first cheese you guys are going to try is called Reblochon. And this is a French cow's Fancy. milk cheese. Uh, I love it it's already. <laughs> traditionally served in a dish called tartiflette, which is essentially potatoes and onions and bacon and cheese. Oh, mm, uh, and so we source a true, true, true reblochon uh, from one of the world's best producers. Uh, so what that means is that the cheese is very high quality. It also means it's very fragrant. Uh, it's not for everybody, so I'll let you guys smell it, and you can you can tell me. Ooh, I can smell it now. Tell me what you think. <clears throat> <laughs> it reminds it is you very of pungent. It's, got, yeah, it's, got it's, like it's pungent. Very soft. 
Oh my goodness! And yeah. <clears throat> what what is the, sort of the uh, the outer? Is it a skin the outer layer? What is that? It's it's called the rind. So the cheese is made up of uh, two components. There is the rind, which is the the sort of crust of the cheese, yeah. and then the paste, which is the inside. And the rind is is in this case uh, not anything that is is coated over the cheese. It is uh, naturally formed. This is a washed rind, which means that while the cheese is aging, we we rub the cheese with a solution, a brine. Sometimes it's an alcohol, um, but in this in this case, it's a it's a brine, and uh, and it just helps manage the flora as the cheese ages, and it helps you as as an effineur or somebody who ages cheese. It helps you pull out certain characteristics in the cheese while it ages. Well, I the, feel like the, I'm walking through the sound of music while I eat this, like in the hills, and there's cattle and someone's. <laughs> <laughs> and it's very rural. But. It is. This is this is made in the in the uh, Savoie region of France, yeah. in in the mountains, and exactly what you imagine is is precisely what it looks like there. The <laughs> taste doesn't match the bouquet, though. Like it, it's delightful. The yeah, taste, the, strange. But the but the but the smell is very pungent. Wow, it's like very divergent there. Yeah, yeah. You know what? That's that's why when uh, people come into the shop, we always encourage everybody to taste. We sample, sample, sample because. You, you have to taste it to to get past sometimes what the cheese might look like or what the cheese might smell like. And I'm shocked. And it's surprisingly really delicious. And we, we have one minute left. You brought a piece of cheese that I said looks like a piece of fruit. It's mm-hmm. like a slice of melon almost. Yeah, like what cantaloupe or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that cheese there is called Mimolette. That is also a French cow's milk cheese. Uh, and so I'm going to let you guys taste this, and then I will tell you why it is adventurous. It is not because of the taste. Uh, the taste of this cheese is is going to be quite accessible, something that most people would enjoy. Um, But what makes this cheese adventurous is that under the rind, there are living little cheese mites. Oh, great. (laughs) Excellent. Cheese mites. Yeah, Yeah, cheese mites. I I felt like, oh, this is good. Sorry, it's like... Is it tickling your throat on the way down? The mites? (laughs) So the the piece that you guys are eating doesn't have any any mites. The mites live only just under the rind, so we don't eat the rind on this cheese. And they are just little microorganisms that nosh away under the rind. And um, these mites do good work. They do. They do. Mighty mites, you might call them. Work. I'm afraid we're out of time, but thank you so much for coming to visit us, Courtney Dollywall. Will you come back? Thank we, you so much yeah, for having me anytime. It, it was really fun. Thank do you. you do that? Like, sorry, do you rob the cheese? You do that all in the shop, or is that where you, you get it from other places? No, we we you don't understand. act as affineurs, yeah. but maybe someday. Oh man, this is good cheese. The cheese mongers fromagerie at Cordon and Lilac. What days are you open? We're open Tuesday through Saturday. All right, I'll have to pay you a visit uh, by the end of this week. Hey, thanks for listening to the Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think. And hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global. And on Instagram, at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.